here we are. Uh, sometimes I do this show, sometimes just to talk myself off a ledge. <laughs> like sometimes it's like I feel like I'm right up against something and then just doing this show is kind of what helps me walk back. Like not actually on a out on a ledge, not like I'm in a state of despair or anything. But just when you have that electricity shooting through your body, when you are kind of consumed with anxiety... And as much as you tell yourself, oh, this is a necessary process, it's either a sign of something that I need to, you know, solve in my practical daily life, or it's just a state I need to endure. But meditation, of course, informs, it informed me a lot about what that actually is. And tonight, for example, like I don't typically meditate at night. You're supposed to. They all tell you you're supposed to meditate in the morning and in the evening. I often don't meditate in the evening, no, because, I mean, I'm just basically in a meditative state at that time anyway. Usually late at night before bed. If I'm not doing a show like this, I'm just uh, sort of mindlessly looking at things, mindlessly thinking, but in a very inactive way. And two, I think it, it, I, there's a fundamental difference to your day when you meditate in the morning. And they say that you should meditate prior to sleep because you bring that state with you into sleep, which is beneficial. But I do find that it makes more of a difference for me, a more of an obvious difference in my life when I do it in the morning. And I mean, I went through a phase at one point where I was meditating many times a day. But that's not sustainable unless you devote yourself, unless you join a monastery or something. But but anyway, tonight, for example, I, I did meditate. And it's, it's interesting because you're sitting there, and it wasn't the deepest state of meditation I've ever been in, but it was, it was okay. It was, it was a reasonable, I felt like I was there, if nothing else. But you really feel the physical nature of anxiety, of the electricity. Whereas I sat there, it was like I didn't feel any of that inside of me. Not even in my head. Like, I didn't even have any anxious thoughts coming to me, really. It was just purely a physical sensation. And I, I know I've told the story about that when I, pretty early on when I first started meditating, how there was a bee got into my house in the middle of the night. And I believe it actually came in through my kitchen sink somehow. That's where it appeared. Because I'm very allergic to bees. I, don't, I developed this allergy later in life. And I'm deathly allergic to bees. And so sitting there meditating and suddenly hearing a bee buzz, a bee buzz, gave me this heightened anxiety where it's just like, I'm a bee's in my house? What does this mean? Are more coming? You know, I got rid of it. But I went back and I resumed meditation that night. And that was very interesting because I had been in a deep state of meditation. And then I, I was able to kind of return to it. But I was able to feel that I was so anxious from the bee, from the bee buzz. Beebers? Beebus. Bee buzz. Uh, a buzzing bee. But returning to that state of meditation, I was able to get back into this deep state, but my body was still anxious. My body was still filled with that electricity, and I noticed it in particular in my arms, where I could just feel electricity shooting up and down my arms. And tonight was a little bit of that, not quite that level more a sense of dread, a sort of anxious dread than anything else. 
But still, when you're sitting there, it's just it's very interesting that that becomes a physical sensation because when you're living your life, it feels like it's in your head. It feels like it's cerebral. It feels like it's inward. Anxiety has this tendency to make us feel like it is coming from within us, whether it's in our inside of our body, the core of our body, or inside of our brain. We tend to feel anxiety that way when we are in our waking everyday life. But when you're meditating and you, you know, it just I'm not going to explain what meditation is or what the process is because I don't, I never feel like I have adequate words. But when you're in that state, it's just so interesting to me that anxiety suddenly becomes this very external experience. It doesn't feel like it's coming from you. It doesn't feel like a soul or spirit experience. It doesn't even feel like a completely mental experience, a cerebral experience. It becomes physical. And that tells me that it always is. But it takes being in that state to actually feel what it is. And of course, it's not, a, it's not produced physically. Anxiety isn't the product of your body reacting to its environment. It, of course, does. It, it's produced by inward feelings or thoughts. But it does tell me that the actual sensation you're experiencing is largely physical. But, uh, you know, I can't really get over this this vaccine argument that's going on now. Like, I heard that there's going to be a a protest in downtown Olympia where I live tomorrow. I don't live in downtown, but, I mean, Olympia is a small town. I'm, I'm you know, a five-minute drive from downtown. Pretty much anybody in the city of Olympia can get downtown within five to ten minutes. But there's going to be an anti-mask, anti-vaccine protest, and I'm going. No, I'm not going. It's fine. They're, they're welcome to do that, of course. Um, but then I saw that there's going to be a counter-protest, like Antifa is staging their own counter-protest, and that's so funny to me. Like, nothing phases me anymore. None of this is surprising. I already know what's going on, more or less. Not that I truly know what's going on, but you know what I mean. And what's so funny to me about that is that you have a group of people who are going to be protesting masks and vaccines, and then Antifa are going there to challenge the people who are opposing government restrictions. And whether you think those restrictions are necessary, because like I said, I said in a recent episode, the argument isn't about whether those restrictions are authoritarian or not. They are authoritarian. It's just the the question is whether some level, I mean, we, we know, and I mean, there's not even an argument about this. Like, we're, we're kind of past the point as a species of arguing over whether there are necessary authoritarian tendencies and unnecessary authoritarian tendencies. Like, just the existence of our civilization is proof that we believe there are necessary government restrictions. We believe there's a certain kind of necessary authoritarianism. So as a civilization, we've already accepted that. And so the, the discussion about masks and vaccines, really it centers on what is necessary authoritarianism. But it's funny to me that Antifa, this group that prides itself on being on the fringes, being on the, the periphery, many of them anarchists, are basically going to this protest, or I mean, we'll see if it happens, but I don't follow these things that closely, but 
it's just so interesting to me that they're there to basically tell another group of people, you need to follow the law. You need to listen to the man. It's just so funny to me. I'm not surprised by it because they've been doing that forever. You know, they've been doing that in various forms for a long time. They've been acting as, as an arm of entrenched political groups. You know, so that's not surprising to me at all. But it's, it is surprising to me that people don't recognize that. That people don't recognize the absurdity of a group like Antifa that prides itself on its politics and its reputation especially those who participate in that, they consider themselves anarchists, would want to go challenge people who are fighting government-imposed restrictions, new government-imposed you know, restrictions. But, of course, it's not even about that. It's not even really about that. But, I mean, just that... I mean, I guess I didn't realize just how severe it's gotten. I mean, I guess it makes sense... Like, people have had the same sort of attitude about vaccines since they started rolling them out. How often do you hear that lately? Rolling it out. People always talked about rolling things out. They're rolling the vaccine out. I wish they actually physically rolled it out. But, you know, I guess I didn't realize, like, how severe people had gotten about it. Like how hateful and nasty people had become about it. Because I saw some of those opinions forming. Like I saw some of those attitudes forming, obviously. It's been going on this entire time. But it's only been recently that I've become fully aware of how hostile and coercive people are about that. But it makes sense that I would be picking up on it more than ever right now. Because I got it. I got the VAC. I guess I got my second one in April. I think the end of April. And at that point, you know, I wasn't one of the first, but there were still quite a few people who hadn't gotten it. It was still early on. I mean, it was kind of a surprise that I was even able to get it that early. I wasn't waiting. I didn't camp out overnight like I was waiting for the new PlayStation. It was just completely random that I was able to get it during another doctor visit. Doctor visit for something else. So it was very random in my case. Uh, I wasn't one of the earliest, but at that point, relatively few people had gotten it. There were still a lot of questions on on the rollout. Oh, we're doing this vac this vac rollout. You ever heard of a vac rollout? You know, the rollout was still kind of early, so at that point, you know, it wasn't quite as severe. The attitudes weren't quite as severe, but we're now at a point where everybody, in theory, who's had the chance to get it, would have gotten it. And we're also entering a period where it's like, oh, there's a bunch of co- there's a coronavirus outbreak here. You know, it's like so people are having to wear masks again. There are these other outbreaks. You know, the restrictions are back in place. I mean, we had basically a month here in Washington where we could go without masks. We had basically a month. It was officially July 1st. And by the end of July, you already were seeing a lot of people choosing to wear masks again. And then by early August, I don't remember when they imposed the mask restrictions again, but I'd say we had about a month without masks. And in people's minds, you know, on one hand, in people's minds, it's like the people who aren't vaxxed and aren't masks are responsible for the fact that, like, we can't go back to normal, which increasingly I don't see is that's not possible. 
we're never going to go back to the world the way it was. And I mean, you never are. But in this case, I don't think we're going to go back to anything even remotely similar. At one point, I thought we might. And I kind of had some, I had my own sense of dread about that because I didn't want that. I didn't want us to go back to the normal that we had before. Because I don't think it was working out. But in people's minds, I think there are still people who, in their minds, they do believe that's possible or they believe something close to that is possible. And I... And this is giving people the benefit of the doubt. This is steel manning the aggressive pro-vac argument. Pro-vac. Is that a vacuum? Might as well be, right? Um, but no, this is kind of steel manning the argument of the most pro-vac people by saying that they just really want to be done with this. They think that if everybody gets the vac, you know, regardless of these other variants, regardless of the fact that apparently the vacs don't completely work, I don't even know. I, you know, I don't even really care. I really don't. I really don't even care. I don't pay that much attention to that stuff. I just can't. It's like when you were in school and you were having to read a book that you really didn't want to read. And no matter how many times you tried to get through it, your eyes would just gloss over and your brain would go somewhere else. That's how I feel whenever I read about somebody's analysis of the data or, their, or, or what's going on in, in Israel. Israel? Israel? I don't have a funny way of saying that. But, you know, that's how I feel anytime someone talks about that stuff. I just... Because my approach has just always been doing the bare minimum. That's not my hill to die on. I have other hills that I will gladly die on if I need to. But the, the whole coronavi, I, I feel like I would be doing a disservice to myself if that was the hill that I chose to die on. So all along, I've just I decided I was going to do the bare minimum to get through it, the bare minimum to be safe. But not to invest in it at all. I've been saying that all along. You can go back to March 2020, and I would say I'm not investing in this. Just in case you're a, just in case that phantom <laughs> that I'm imagining right now is listening, who's like, I don't believe you. I'm all, I always imagine there's some phantom who's listening to me, even if it's a bot. That'd be great if like the only people, the only quote unquote people who listen to this were just bots crawling. Wouldn't surprise me at this point. But uh, you know that phantom who's like, I don't. I think that you said this, but no. I, I, this has been my line all along, which is just I don't want to invest too deeply, and I'm going to do the bare minimum to get through it. And I'm not even, you know, as I've said about masks, I think masks are cool. What makes them uncool is when the government forces you to wear them. But I've always liked masks that cover the lower part of your face. Like, I always gravitated toward characters like that when I was growing up. Like, uh, in G.I. Joe, I loved the character Beachhead. He had a weird name. Like, I didn't know what a Beachhead was as a kid. So I didn't understand why there was this really cool-looking G.I. Joe character in a ski mask named Beachhead. And honestly, there really wasn't anything else about his character that I liked that much. It was just the fact that he wore a ski mask. And, you know, Storm Shadow was another G.I. Joe. Ninjas. I mean, that's, I feel like that's one of the main reasons people like ninjas, in addition to their cool, you know, their, their clandestine, you know, martial arts ability. What people like about them is their masks. 
And without masks, you don't really care about a ninja. Like, if there's a ninja in a story... Like, I remember even being disappointed when they would unmask a ninja or a masked character because I didn't even want to see his face. So I like masks, just in general. I like especially masks that cover the lower part of your face. So I was, I was never really that upset about the mask thing. I mean, the posturing about it and everything, like the people who think that they need to, like, wear their mask in their profile photo to, like, to be a good example... To be a good example, I gotta be a good example. Gotta let all my friends see me in photographs wearing a mask so that I set a good example because I'm a little politician and I set the tone. You know, that bothers me. It's just on a, a, you know, it's a petty thing, but it's just one of those things that kind of rubs me the wrong way. But I never really cared about the mask thing. But anyway, so, you know... I guess I guess this this whole like the severity of the of this these arguments right now kind of caught up caught me by surprise, and it makes sense that the timing makes sense though given everything going on given that the vaccine has been around for as long as it has now, given that we are now having to wear masks again, it makes complete sense and we'll see what happens tomorrow. Hopefully nothing, you know, because even though I get this sense of excitement when things come to a head, and there is this part of me I'll. And I I admit it's actually very strong right now that wants things to escalate, that wants things to come to a head. And that's just because this this is just eating away at everybody. And so things coming to a head, at least it's like some sort of a release. But I don't necessarily want that because things coming to a head means people getting hurt. And at no point am I okay with that. At no point am I okay with the idea of wishing ill upon anyone. Because that's where I draw the line. Like, even if I vehemently disagree with people, I just cannot wish ill upon them. I just can't. Like, sometimes I wish I could because it feels good to, like, let that inner beast take over. But it's very difficult for me right now. And I'm not, it's not even a feeling I'm fighting. And, and like, speaking of that woman in my neighborhood that I overheard like wishing that her father-in-law dies because he's unvaccinated and it inconveniences her and it wasn't even clear like how it inconvenienced her and of course I, I just heard a snippet of a conversation on my walk you know she was you know obviously she wasn't wishing that he die but then increasingly I see commentary where people are like like Joe Rogan had coronavirus and there were people hoping that he dies which is insane. Like liberals have made him out to be something so different than what he is. And I don't even want to be a person defending Joe Rogan. Like I like, like I, I, I recently I mentioned him on here and I said, I think he's a net positive. I don't see how you could look at Joe Rogan and not see him as a net positive. He's very middle of the road. He's not particularly interesting himself. You know, his show is not explosive. Like there was a period where new Joe Rogan episodes felt like they were tapped into the zeitgeist and that they were important this is back when they were live you would see them live like you'd be you'd be doing something and you'd see that there was a live joe rogan episode on and you'd watch it and you kind of felt like you were part of an event but that you know tapered off like you can't expect that to exist forever but i just see him as basically a net positive a very middle of the road guy who says very basic things and doesn't always go along with what everybody's saying like he's not a contrarian though you know, he, he is definitely not a contrarian. I've never gotten that vibe from him. 
but he is someone who, who will go against the narrative if he feels like it. And that doesn't always mean he's right. It doesn't mean he's wrong either. But because he has gone against some of the narratives about Coronavi, I guess, and because he's been made out to be some sort of gateway to, I don't even know what, I don't even know what people are accusing him of being at this point. For a while, they were trying to say he's some kind of gateway to the alt-right, which is just absurd. Like, you know, uh, but uh, anyway... You know, people were wishing that he dies. Like people, there were people out there saying that, you know, real people. And so even though there's a facetiousness to like wishing ill upon somebody, it's like I saw it when when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. I was disgusted by people who were celebrating that. You know, I felt an excitement in the air. And, you know, I, of course, one of my big campaigns, in addition, in addition to my campaign against phone shaming, one of my big campaigns on here over the years has been to return the word excitement back to its older use, where it didn't refer to necessarily a happy thing. It's like when you used to read in a newspaper that a man was seen on the street shouting excitedly. That didn't mean he was happy. It meant that he was excited. He was, you know, it could be bad or good. It means like somebody had basically lost their cool. And when you're excited, happy, you kind of lose your cool then because you're just you're feeling that happiness so much. You're feeling that burst of joy that you don't really care about how you come across or how things seem. You're you're kind of glib. You're just like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Oh, my God. You see this? You know, you kind of lose your cool, but you're happy. But I mean, being excited is the same thing when you're upset. You're losing your cool, but it's about something bad. But anyway, like when Ruth Gator, Ruth Gator died That'll be her name if I ever talk about her again. Hopefully not. I mean, I don't really have a reason to. I don't really get deep on all these people. I try not to, at least. But Ruth Bader Gator Ginsburg. Um, I can't even remember her real name. But uh, when she died, like, you know, I could feel the excitement in the air in the sense that, like, this means something. is Like, this is an event. Like, when I say excitement, that's what I mean. Like, Sometimes someone will die, like a celebrity will die, or something big happens, and I feel the excitement. And it's very easy to get sucked into that one way or another. But, like, I, you know, I'll readily admit to feeling the excitement, but I'd seen people celebrating her death, and I was like, that's not the direction you want to go in. No matter what your attitude is about abortion, no matter how much you hate progressives who have turned this woman into an idol, you know, you you don't want to celebrate her death. You just don't want to do that. And it's not because I'm afraid to joke about death. I'll joke about death. But it, it's a subject, I don't know, for, for some reason, it just, as more time goes by in my life, I just, it, it feels more and more sacrilegious to my soul to, to celebrate a death or to even joke about wanting someone to die. That's just, I don't know, it just feels sacrilegious to me to think that way. And I don't even have to fight it at this point. This isn't me saying I'm so righteous or, you know, I'm so morally upstanding. I'm just saying I feel fortunate that that's not a feeling that I have to fight right now. I do have to fight the feeling of whether or not to freaking hate some people. I think that's a battle that I'll be fighting the rest of my life. But fortunately, I don't wish ill upon people. But, you know, on one hand, like hearing my neighbor say that she hopes her father-in-law dies because it's inconveniencing her in some way that he's not vaccinated... As much as like I want to be like, oh, she's just joking and I'm totally cool with jokes. 
even if they're about your father-in-law dying, like it's, that's a, you're more than welcome to joke about what you want. It didn't completely sound that way. It didn't completely sound like a joke. And you and there's a certain status to being vaccinated, you know, and he might not like me talking about this. I won't name him, but, you know, I mentioned a friend of mine had like basically, you know, him being unvaccinated played a role in a breakup. And, you know, he had been invited to a party where everybody was vaccinated and he was told because he wasn't vaccinated that he had to wear a mask. And that's just dehumanizing. You know, if everybody else at the party is vaccinated, why does he need to wear a mask? Like, shouldn't they be safe from him? But the idea was that it was like going into a store. It's like when stores decided to start letting people in, like all the stores around here during that month where masks weren't required, all the stores had signs that say masks encouraged for non-vaccinated people. So like basically this group of people took that sort of attitude about it. Where it was like, oh, if you're not vaccinated and you want to come to the party, you have to wear a mask. It's like making someone wear a dunce cap. Like, oh, if you come to the party, you have to wear this thing that shows that you are of a different status. And just, and at that point, too, this is a while back, at that point, everybody kind of just, everybody was under the belief that vaccinations were 100% effective. And there was no Delta variant making its rounds that people knew of at that time. So it was just, it was purely a power move. Like saying, because you won't get the vaccination or you haven't gotten the vaccination, you have to wear a mask to the party while everybody else is supposedly safe from COVID, Corona. And uh, so it just doesn't make any sense. So there is a status element to it. And there's probably a lot of people out there who are embarrassed about their loved ones not getting it because there is a status element to it. And so when people say, like, I hope so-and-so dies, whether it's a celebrity like Joe Rogan or whether it's their father-in-law, whether it's somebody else, I can't help but feel like there's an element of, they, there's an element of truth to what they're wishing. You know, I can't, I can't help but believe a part of them really does want that. I, did, I bought a vape today. I, I went a few days without one, and I just said, eh, you know, I, I, I'll feel better with one. You know, I, I do really have to, uh, I have to weigh my vices. And I, I, right now I feel like Red Bang Vape, because it's, 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 the flavor is called Red Bang, which in it's energy drink flavored. I'm not even kidding. The flavor is Red Bang. Red is a, is a reference to Red Bull. And I'm guessing Bang is a reference to my, my beloved Bang. My beloved Bang. I don't know. But it's it tastes like an energy drink, and I actually love that flavor. I love just standard energy drink flavor, and so having that in a vape is really nice. But yeah, weighing my vices, this seems like a relatively minor one. The expense is the biggest issue because they're not cheap. But anyway, enough talk about that. Um, you know, but yeah, it's something about the the whole mask. Well, specifically the the vaccine, the vac. I, I just hate the way vac sounds. Like when I say anti-vac. And VAC, one, it sounds really stupid, but there's just something about the VAX that really grates against me. It kind of reminds me of, uh, like, it really disturbed me when people started saying mask up, because that's been something that protesters have been saying for years. Like Antifa, for example, like if you've seen their flyers in previous years, 
their flyers would say mask up. And it's kind of like this hip way of saying wear a mask. It's very hip. Oh, mask up. Mask up. But older people picked up on that. Like during Coronavi, people started saying that. Like, Which is interesting that a phrase that was popular with Antifa just became a mainstream phrase for Coronavi masks. But old people, like everybody just started saying, I think Joe, uh, Joe Obama bin Biden has even said mask up. The oldest man in the country. Joe Obama bin Biden. It turns out, I didn't know this about him, but it turns out he's the oldest living human being in America. But anyway, that's pretty much, that's pretty much like the level of comedy that late night TV has now, right? Except they don't criticize him, or they, if they do, it's very, it's, it's very uh, passive. But anyway, like, like what I've noticed about the whole VAC issue is like there's a certain type of person, and it, it, this transcends these issues, obviously. These are just human tendencies. But with the VAC, it's like there's a certain sort of person who feels, one, when they get the VAC, that they're now on that team, and they might be on that team very willingly. They, they're excited. They're like, oh, thank God. It's a status thing again. It's like, I get to be on Team VAC. I wanted this for so long. Oh, my God, I'm happy. You know, there's that sort of person. But then there's even a sort of person who, like me, for example, who got it kind of randomly or reluctantly. But because they got it, and unlike me, they now are invested in it. It's almost like because I had to get it, you have to get it. And that's an attitude. I think some people just have a tendency to think that way. Because I had to do it, you have to do it. It's kind of like the cycle of of abuse logic. I mean, it's kind of like an abusive parent who's like, I got beat with a belt, and I'm okay. So I think I need to beat my kids with a belt. It happened to me. There's that sort of person where they have a very difficult time... You know, it's like, I was circumcised, so my son's got to be circumcised. Everybody should be circumcised. You know, it's like that sort of logic where it's just like, because it hap- because I had to do it, you should have to do it. Whereas I don't feel that way at all. My natural tendency is, hmm, I guess I, I chose to do it. I do feel like I kind of had to do it. But the last thing I want to do is force someone else to do it. And maybe part of that is because I feel no investment. I don't feel any investment in vaccines. Like if you told me tomorrow that it was all placebo, well, first of all, I'd, I'd be alarmed just because my reaction to the second shot was so significant. You know, I was sick for basically 24 hours uh, in a very uncomfortable sickness that I haven't had in who knows how long, who knows how many years. It made me incredibly sick. I'd be kind of, I'm like, well, it did that to me. A placebo did that. But other than that, if you told me it was a placebo, I'd just say, oh, well, I played your little game. But I wasn't invested enough in it to begin with to feel either, I, I, I would feel no betrayal. I would just say, oh, that's pretty typical. Pretty typical of you guys these days. But it wouldn't really change my view. It wouldn't really change my attitude about anything. It would just make me that much more skeptical about future vax, vac, and that's V-A-C-K-S, not V-A-X, because like I was, I was going to get into a minute ago, kind of like mask up becoming popular. There's something in about people saying that that just really rubs me the wrong way. I feel the same way about V-A-X. 
or I've even seen VAXX, which is like a joke, but then that becomes something people actually write. But, you know, I, I feel no investment in it. And But there is that sort of person who, because they either wanted to or because they felt they had to, they now feel that that's their team. And they, you know, to be honest, I, I would bet that a lot of people who are vehemently pro-vaccine and feel that everyone has to get it, I bet they don't even truly feel that way. I bet they enjoy that there is an outgroup, a very distinct outgroup. For once, they don't have to, you know, turn on their friends like they normally do. And they can, here's this outgroup that you can mock, you can say whatever you want about them. Because if it was actually about convincing them to get the vaccine for everybody's well-being, they would not be taking the approach they're taking. They would not be so hostile. They would not be so severe. And uh, so I, I think many of these people are simply liars who love the fact that people don't have the vaccine because it gives them a way to target their hate. But there are people out there like, you know, there are people out there who just want everybody to get it so that we can move on. Even though there's really no indication that that's what's going to happen that there's going to be any moving on anytime soon. But they want people to get it so that everybody's safe and that we can potentially move on. There are people who believe that, but I think they're the really hostile people you see. I think they kind of get off on the fact that there is this other that they can target who doesn't have their status among the VACT. And just that psychology, you know, it's the same with masks too. I mean, you saw it with masks where it's like, because I have to wear one, you have to wear one. And what makes this that much stranger is that in many cases, people are thinking these things about other parts of the country, places that are farther away from, if, you, if you're if you living in the U.S., there's a good chance that you're worrying about what people are doing on another end of the country that's actually farther than, you know, some countries in Europe are from each other. And you're just thinking about those people. It's amazing. And of course, like just what we needed right now is the good old abortion debate. But it is perfect timing given all of this does concern an individual's personal responsibility, their own body. And you know, I'm not even going to get into the abortion thing. I, I've mentioned on here, I've mentioned my outlook, which is not very defined. You know, my stance toward abortion is not very defined, but the main thing is, is that usually people are arguing about different things. You know, abortion is one of the best examples of people having this ongoing argument, but not even addressing the same issue. Because it's like religious fundamentalists, and I don't think you have to be a fundamentalist to oppose abortion, but or even religious, obviously. Plenty of people aren't religious at all, and they oppose abortion. But why acknowledge that when we can paint with a broad brush, you know, the broad brush? But anyway, you know, it's like many of those people, they're coming from the point of view that there is a soul and it is not being given a chance to live. And so like they're seeing it from a soul level. They're seeing it from a mystical level. And of course, to people who who worship the the black and white world of science 
or you know, modern the modern ideology of science, opposed to the scientific method itself. People who worship the microscope, as I say, well, they don't care about souls at all. They haven't they haven't discovered the soul because you know every time a scientist finds something, he's dis- he discovered it. It was just there. It was it was just there, and he di- he he discovered it. He can claim he can, his ego feels really good because he found something that was already there. But anyway, with um, you know the abortion thing, it's like I mean, there's a fundamental difference because it's like to to somebody who opposes abortion, they see this as a, a living thing with a soul who is being snuffed out of existence. And so just right there, there is just a disconnect. And usually the argument ends up about something else entirely, where it's not usually point and counterpoint. I mean, to give people credit, sometimes they do argue about that. Like one of the, the central arguments to abortion is obviously, you know, does life begin at conception? Does life begin at, you know, fertilization? Like when does life begin? But you have to remember that like Christian fundamentalists or just religious people in general, their mystical outlook means they're not seeing this from a biological point of view at all. And it does kind of get into an argument where it's like, if you were to say to somebody, you know, hey, there's a a tiny sprout coming out of the ground. It's not, you know, it's, you would never say that that is a, I don't know the names of plants, Jesus. I don't know the names of any plants. There's plants to me. Let's say a fern bush, <laughs> just because it's all I can think of. Like, let's say like, like the, the tiniest, like the earliest little, um, sprout is coming out and you know, that's going to be a bush, you know, that's going to be a fern bush. You wouldn't say it's a fern bush already. Like it's like, cause your idea of what a fern bush is, it has a distinct look. Like, even if it's not fully grown, it's like, you don't think of a fern being a fern until it looks at least something like a fern. But if you were to like say to somebody like, oh, like there, there was a fern sprouting and like I went over and stomped it out because I don't want that. I don't want that growing in my yard. There might be somebody who, who thinks that that was cruel. You know, although, you know, we tend to be pretty OK with people killing plants, but still it's like the same sort of idea. And, you know, the person stomping, it might be like, well, it wasn't it wasn't even a, a fern yet. And somebody else is like, but it was going to be one. You know, it, it's that sort of idea. And to give people some credit, it's like sometimes they do argue about like at what point does something become a living child? But when you bring souls and spirits into it, it's entirely different. And I guess one way of looking at it, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, and and to be honest, I've never even looked into this. I've never even looked into what different branches of Buddhism believe when it comes to abortion. But just from a general sort of mainstream Buddhist perspective, you you can see that or Hindu, you know, Eastern religion in general, you could say that, you know, it's, there might be something ethically or morally questionable about aborting a child. And a Buddhist, for example, would believe that child has a soul, much like a Christian does. But the Buddhist would think, like, that was their karma. Not that they deserve that, because, I mean, karma is a far more advanced system than just like you did something bad so you got aborted first thing oh that baby must have been a real dickhead that baby must have been a real freak 
because when when that baby arrived into this life, they just they killed that baby before he even had a chance. You know, it, it, karma doesn't work that way necessarily. But you can see it as as somehow like an inevitability that that's what was meant to happen, maybe. And and regardless of whether it was meant to happen, regardless of the moral and ethical questions of abortion at all, the idea is that that baby can then be reincarnated. So that's where the East would differ from the West as far as abortion goes, where it's like they both believe there's a soul, a spirit in that baby or in that potential baby, but the abortion like wouldn't stop that soul from traveling on and being aborted could be seen as a, as a necessary step in that soul's path through different bodies, you know, and that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't like that view, even though it acknowledges the soul. And I, I don't, I'm not saying I even believe that. Like I said, my, my take on abortion is very loose. I haven't felt pressured to really wrap it all up with a bow. I do understand everybody's arguments though. You know, I can, I can say that I understand where everybody is coming from on it. And that's what makes it so difficult. It's a, a true dilemma. But unfortunately, it gets bundled with so much else. And then, of course, right now it is paralleling these other arguments, these other heated arguments about taking responsibility for yourself. Because that's one of the biggest disconnects is with abortion, the idea is that it's not yet a baby. Like like the left's perspective is that it's not yet a baby. It's simply an extension of the woman you know, it's a potential baby, but it's just at that point, it's basically just something growing inside of the woman. That's hard to reconcile too, though. I, I have a hard time reconciling that point, but it, it doesn't, that point doesn't even matter when it comes to this argument because it is so fundamentally opposite from anti-abortion groups. Like anti-abortion groups, like they don't even have anything to say in response to that other than you're narcissistic and evil to think that. So, like, they can't even really have a debate about that particular side of the argument because they don't think that that is just an extension of the woman's body. But that ends up being a lot of the focus, which is why my body, my choice is the slogan. But the opposite group doesn't believe that it's just your body, and that's the problem. So that point, like, while while that point makes sense from the point of view the left is arguing it from, it doesn't even it doesn't cross that gap at all like that argument that that particular slogan just disappears in the abyss before it even gets to anti-abortion groups because they won't even acknowledge that rationale and there's so many other diff- just different ways that that happens on both sides you know there are very few actual points that can cross that abyss and be debated because the philosophical difference is so sharp. And that's what makes that particular subject so difficult. But it does parallel all of this talk about masks and bodies. Because anti-maskers, anti-vackers, you know, they aren't, they're coming from the point of view that coronavi is something that could affect me. And... It's not up to me to have to protect other people. 
in a theoretical scenario where I infect them. So you, you just end up arguing about different things, and that's what's so difficult, difficult about any discussion, especially these heavily politicized discussions where all of these preloaded points have been bundled together, and they've been bundled with these other issues that really aren't directly related at all. But I don't know, it's, it's just interesting to see people's different tendencies in all of these situations. The way that some people, yeah, they, they feel that they either want to or have to go through a certain process, therefore everybody should. So our current events, the world we're living in right now, it's a great test of your own values. Like now should be a great time for everybody to really get in touch with how they truly view. I mean, it's it's a time of, you know, I, I steer away from the word philosophy, but this really is an interesting time philosophically because you get to see like what you're really seeing the foundation of everyone's philosophies. And I think many people just didn't even really have one to begin with. I'm realizing, and I don't even mean this as an insult or like to make myself sound good or anything, because I've really, it's only been in the last few years that I feel like I've even made any sense of anything. And that has made even less sense, (laughs) you know, like it's only in the last few years that I feel like I've made any sense of anything and making sense of things has actually made everything seem like an even greater heap of nonsense, but yet not. You know, because I do feel like I, there's some sense of meaning to be found in all of that. And part of that meaning includes the nonsense. The nonsense is an important part of that. Nonsense is an important part of meaning. Because it's so easy to succumb to the nonsense, but you also need the nonsense. You need the absurdity. But yeah, I do see where, like, I think some people really didn't have, like, beyond whatever political stance they have, I do wonder, like, how many people really went into this situation with their own personal philosophy, and not even something that they developed on their own. But just having gone through some of these questions about life, and the sort of life that they want to live individually... And what that means in relation to other people. You know, and I've been avoiding a lot of people I know lately. And I question whether that's the right thing to do. Because I'm like, do I really want to... I'm not worried about permanently losing touch with anybody. I'm not worried about bad blood. Beyond the people who are just looking... I mean, there's people out there who are looking for bad blood. There are people who, if they don't hear from you in a certain while... They'll just develop bad blood based on that alone, and who cares about them? But, you know, I was thinking about it today, and I was like, you know, at some point I'm obviously going to have to, you know, come into contact with with people, like friends and everybody more. But right now I do feel like as much as I preach, like, trusting everybody and that the bullshit will, will cancel itself out, like I was saying about liars a while back, the nice thing about liars is if you don't get invested in what they're selling you, like if you don't buy in too early to what they're trying to sell you or what they're trying to do, whatever they're trying to do by lying, 
even if it's even if it doesn't directly involve you, if you just don't buy into what they're saying, you know, eventually they out themselves or eventually like a crack forms and you see that crack and that kind of opens everything up and you're like, oh, yeah, this person was a liar all along and now everybody knows. You know, that's kind of my approach to people right now, where it's like as much as I want to go into life and be like, well, I trust everybody. And by trusting everybody, that means that I will listen to everybody and the bullshit will cancel itself out or eventually reveal itself. I'm finding that very difficult right now. And I'm glad that I still remind myself that I should see life that way. Like, I'm glad that I still kind of have, have built up a mantra inside that says, trust people, trust people. And I'm glad that I've kept hold of that because of times like this, especially like it's easy to do that when you're feeling good. And I think I was probably on a high, like not a drug high, but just a life high. When I thought of that, I was probably like, yeah, like you can just trust everybody and and like the bullshit will cancel itself out. Like I was probably feeling very trusting at that moment. I was probably feeling very excited in a happy way. But the real test of that is when it's the opposite. And right now, I'm just, I, my default is I'm, I'm not feeling, I'm not entirely trusting of people, including people I know. And I think like not wanting to look at social media or in the last, you know, month, month, a little over a month now, I'm going to keep a tally, guys. I'm going to keep a tally. I'm going to keep you updated on that because it matters so much. But no, but with that, I think a part of that is like specifically not checking accounts of people I know. It's because like, I really don't want to see what they're saying about all of this. You know, because I do like people and I do care about them. And I, I've increasingly seen people just parrot what what's being said everywhere else. I mean, that was very prevalent in summer 2020. Just to see who and who parroted what and what they were saying and how it mirrored what was going on in these political circles, what was going on. Just I guess it's the collective psychosis. It's just... When you see people you know get consumed by a collective psychosis, my go-to at this point isn't to hate them for it or be mad at them. It just, I don't want to see it. And I don't want to, I don't want to judge them for it. I don't want to, I don't want that to be the way that I view them moving forward. So I think a part of me is kind of reluctant to talk to people and see people. And a lot of this might have to do with where I live. But you know what, honestly, like if I lived in a different part of the country and I was surrounded by people who were constantly on the anti-mask trip, I would get irritated by that. Not because I disagree with what they're doing or their right to do it, but I guess I just, I don't want to hear anybody who's just making talking points that I can see anywhere else. And increasingly, it's people I know doing that, people who never otherwise would have done that. It's not like a, oh, everybody's sheep. I never see people that way. I never see people as sheep anymore. And I never really did. I was never really comfortable with that. I don't see people as sheep. Just like I try not to see people as stupid. But I guess I don't even want to test that right now. You know, because somebody did, only one person has actually straight up asked me if I was vacked. And when I told them I was they said, few, few. And I don't know if that was, you know, the, given who it was, I wouldn't be surprised if that few, 
was because they were wondering if I was an anti-vacker. I kind of it kind of felt like a test to me. Like it didn't feel like, and actually, this was the same person who I mentioned was worried that my views on free speech meant that I had become radicalized by QAnon. It was the same exact person. So coming from from that person, it just it felt like they were testing me to see if I was an anti-vacker or not. Maybe because they don't like my views on free speech, they were also testing me to see if I was a vacker. I also don't like that my mind goes there. I don't like feeling cynical like that. To be like, is my friend testing me? But you know what? They do that. Like a different friend of mine who I love during the 2020 protests, riots, she messaged me and was like, hey, we're doing this tonight. You want to come? Like invited me to some sort of protest where they were walking through neighborhoods, which I feel very strongly about. Because that's the thing is like, I am fine with people protesting. I am fine with protests. People have a right to protest. I don't I have a big problem with riots. I have a big problem with people downplaying riots and calling them peaceful protests. I, I, it's dishonest. But when this person invited me to some protest, which I've never, ever expressed any support for BLM. And I have to wonder if this person who I who knows me very well, but politics were never part of our friendship. But I, I can't help but wonder if this person, this was, and this was a year ago, this is over a year ago now that this happened. But this person who invited me to a protest, I couldn't help but feel it was a test. Because I had never made any kind of comment about BLM and I didn't express, I didn't put up the little black square. And people notice that. They're like Santa Claus. They're making a list and they're checking it twice. I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that just like I was noticing who said what, they were noticing who said what. And they're very focused on who's silent because that's part of the narrative is silence is violence and that being passive is enabling the worst people. So, you know, I'm making a, I'm, the diff- I'm noticing who's saying what, but I'm not making a list. But I can't help but feel that other people are in their minds. And when this person invited me to this protest, I couldn't help, just the wording of it, I couldn't help but feel, it, one, I think, was overstepping their bounds because they don't really know, because they don't know. Like, if I had expressed something about it earlier, like if I had said something to her at some point where I was like, oh, heck yeah, heck yeah. That'd be one thing, but because it was just totally, it was a cold call. Even though this was with somebody I know, it was essentially a cold call. And I had to think very carefully about how I responded, you know, I because I didn't want to misrepresent myself, but I didn't want this to be a point of contention. And so I, I somehow tactfully turned down this generous offer to go walk through people's neighborhoods as part of a protest, which stay out of people's neighborhoods. Do not, even if it's peaceful, stay out of people's neighborhoods. Because even if that's in theory peaceful, walking down someone's street with a mob, that's just a threat. You're threatening people. You know exactly what you're implying. It's one thing to go downtown. It's one thing to go to a central area. But when you start going to where people live, to residential neighborhoods, you are trying to intimidate people, even if you are doing it peacefully. 
but that felt like a test to me. And then this question about the vac, that felt like a test as well. And I, I, I truly don't think I'm paranoid and cynical in thinking that. Given like who asked me and some of the other conversations that have taken place, I couldn't help but feel that few was like, oh, I'm so glad you're not an anti-vacker. But guess what? I'm also not... I've never asked anybody that. I haven't... I don't think I've asked a single person, are you vacked? Are you vacked? If it's somebody that I know and I have to interact with a lot, that's a little different. But somebody that I haven't seen in a long time messaging me about whether I'm vacked or not, that's a little... It's it's so out of the blue that I just find it suspicious. It seemed like collecting info. But you always hear about those sorts of climates. Because, I mean, that's another thing I should say is that, like, in not wanting to talk to people, I do question, like, you know, is this the right thing for me? I can handle isolation. I, I can I enjoy my time to myself, and I'm still in contact with the right people. I'm actually extremely grateful for the people that I'm in regular contact with right now. Uh, just, I, I, I truly feel privileged to talk to the people I do. But I don't want to reach a point where I'm, I'm so paranoid and cynical about people, especially those who believe things I don't believe or are saying things that I don't agree with, I don't want to be so paranoid and cynical that I end up like resenting them or hating them. And so I can't completely, I can't go all in on that. But I I think, I do think I'm doing the right thing by removing myself. You know, I I do think that I'm doing the right thing for everybody that I know, for me too. Because honestly, I don't really want to subject people to what's going on in my mind. Because honestly, if if I were around somebody right now, I feel that I would inevitably censor myself or say something that would cause irritation. Unless it was like, unless everybody was focused on something else, but it, it seems increasingly hard to just do that. And so I can handle that. I can handle the isolation. I know it won't kill me. You know, I'm a, I'm a lone... I'm not a lonely person by nature, but I would say I'm a lonesome person by nature. So I can handle all that, but it does have a breaking point. There is a point where you've spent too much time out of contact with people, but, you know, you have good experiences too. Like I think, like speaking of uh, just... Uh, you know, like like feeling grateful to be in contact with the people that I'm in contact with right now. Like, I was at the pet food store today, and a middle-aged woman, and I'm a big fan of middle-aged women. I tend to get along with them very well. And we all know, like, like everybody hates middle-aged women because they're all, they're Karens or all this. Yeah, they do have that tendency. Like, even the good ones have that tendency to kind of get into other people's business. You know, they, they do have those tendencies but you can have the best like conversations out in public like I ended up talking to this lady because like you know I was looking for they were out of the dog food that I wanted to buy so I know this is so interesting but they were out of the dog food that I wanted to buy and so I was trying to find another because even though I know like it's just a bag of dog food and Batty will eat it you know as a first-time dog owner and as someone who's just figuring this out like I want to get him good food 
Like I want to get him good, like the right food and being a small dog, you know, certain, certain food is, is better suited for him and this and that. But so I, you know, it's kind of like talking to this lady about that. And then she was talking about her dog. And I honestly, I really appreciate those interactions because I'm so inside my own head right now. that It's good for me to just have good conversations with strangers. And today's actually been good in that regard. Like I went to the convenience store and like the old Asian man, I was buying, I bought like one bag. Cause that's what I love about convenience stores. You can buy, you can buy just one bag of popcorn. And so I bought one bag of popcorn and it was the one that says like sneak preview movie, movie popcorns, movie butter, movie butter, whatever. So like, like the label has something has like a film reel on it. <laughs> And the old the old guy at the convenience store, you know, broken English, he's like, "Gonna watch a movie." I thought that was so funny, and I said, "What?" And he was like, "Gonna watch a movie," and I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> that's a good joke. Like, that's the kind of joke I like." Yeah, I'm buying movie theater popcorn, and he makes the joke. Like he said it as a joke, and I just I thought that was a great joke. And he said it like very, he said it exactly like I said it, you know, just like very, under his breath. Uh, so I appreciate that. And then, like I said, I did, I did that little 11, 10 minute episode about the woman having the seizure outside of the grocery store. And then after she had her seizure running into her in the grocery store and she complimented my Thor's hammer necklace, those are, that's like three good interactions with strangers today. So those are actually really beneficial to me right now is to have just good interactions with strangers, whether it's somebody who was having a seizure and you called 911 and they ended up fine. Whether it's like the, the convenience store owner joking about watching movies with my movie theater popcorn. Whether it's the middle-aged lady just happy to talk for a minute about dogs. You know, it's all good stuff. And that stuff's, that stuff glues you to society. You know, that, that stuff really, like I've talked about small talk on here. But it's like that stuff, as minor and unimportant as it seems, like that really is what glues you to society. And it's especially valuable to me right now where it feels like increasingly the people I know make me feel unglued from society, which is not how it should be. It should be your community. It should be friends and not just your best friends who agree with you. But it should be your community and your friends that actually make you feel more glued to society. But I am a loner by nature. I, I have to not call myself a lone wolf. Because I don't want to end up on a terrorist list. Or, or try to sound like that cool guy. I'm just a lone wolf, baby. I'm just a lone wolf. But, uh, you know, I am a loner by nature. So it's just, it's one of those things, though. It's It's... It, it's paying attention, you know, it's, it's paying attention. It's being aware. I mean, being aware of yourself, being aware of what you're doing, weighing the options. And, you know, to be honest, like a part of me is relieved that restrictions are put back in place. A part of me is relieved that it's harder to meet up with people and get back into groups again. Because the reality is I'm just not prepared for that. Not that I'm anxious about it. 
I just don't know how it's all going to shake out. And for all of the reasons I've outlined in this episode, in every episode pretty much, I just don't entirely feel comfortable with people. And and you could say like, oh, well, you should find people. I, I have people. I have plenty of people in my life who, even if they're messed up, even if they have crazy shit going on in their life, they're coming from a balanced place. The way they see the world has a, a level of balance to it. So I do have plenty of that in my life. I don't know how this comes across. I don't know what I've just said for the last 10 minutes, how it comes across. But, you know, I don't feel like I'm lacking in anything. And I think the fact that it feels like a choice is good. You know, it's like choosing not to do something. I mean, it's like I, when I've talked about the incels, for example. Like the whole dilemma of the incel is that they have no choice. You know, somebody can be celibate by choice. And the fact that they know they're turning down opportunities to get laid, dude. You know, that actually does help you mentally. Because, you know, if an incel were to get into shape and just reprogram his life, you know, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. It's a lot more complicated than going to the gym and reading a book. But still, like if the incel were to get control over his life and become an an attractive human being, they probably wouldn't even get that much pleasure from sleeping with tons of girls. Because I don't think those types of guys are even meant for that. I don't think those guys are meant to get laid all the time, dude. I don't even think... I think incels are the way they are for a reason. I don't think they're meant to be ladies' men. I think that that if they could kind of figure themselves out, I think they might realize that that's not their role. But unfortunately, they get convinced that they're just like a an ostracized version of a successful man or something. I don't know what they think, but but if they could just uh, if if they could actually become desirable and attractive. They might very well realize that they get more satisfaction from not attracting women or, or or rather not attracting women, but from like not giving in and not not being ladies men, not sleeping around. Maybe, you know, they might realize that once they've had that. It, it isn't actually that important to them. And so I think the same a lot the same logic applies to just socialization though. It's like when you're in a, a position where you don't have anybody you can call, when you don't have any friends. Like you can't enjoy that feeling. Like you can't embrace that feeling because a part of you feels like you lost. A part of you feels like you lost the race. But if you do have people, like if you do have bridges open to people, you're just not walking them. You can kind of say, well, I know the option is available. I haven't burned any bridges. I don't feel ostracized. I'm just making a choice to be alone. And that's where I feel like I'm at. Where it's like I'm making a clear, conscious choice to be alone. It doesn't really seem like there's any other option right now. But we know, I mean, my friend Keith, who is dead, he's dead. My friend Keith, he released an album at one point called Isolation is Lonely Murder. And I don't know where he got that from or if he or if he came up with it himself. He's dead, so I can't ask him. But yeah, he, he I, that title, like it, it just it's stayed in my head ever since I saw it. Isolation is Lonely Murder. 
It doesn't have to be, though. You know, it really it doesn't have to be lonely murder, but we know that it can become that. It can become a vacuum of self-loathing. You can hate life that way. I and mean, you think about solitary confinement. You know, your life can feel that way if you're alone too much. Or you end up hating everybody or resenting people or developing this paranoia, becoming the bad wizard like I talk about. I've talked before about, you know, you run the risk of becoming Soromon or Ted Kaczynski, where you're the bad wizard. But you can also become the sage. You know, you can also become the sage who simply lives in nature, the monk. Like Song Chin, I think his name is Song Chin, a South Korean Buddhist, very well known. You know, he spent significant amounts of time in the mountains of Korea where I hiked. My claim to fame, my biggest accomplishment was climbing a mountain in South Korea wearing dress shoes. And when I was about to climb the mountain, an old man who looked like he'd probably been climbing that mountain every day for his entire life. And because old people in Korea are in fairly good shape compared to here, he was coming down from the mountain. And I mean, when I say a mountain, it was near civilization, but it was a very mountainous region. And on the edges of town, you could access the mountains. And it started as kind of a trail, but it was a mountain. It was, it was not Mount Rainier. It was not Mount Everest, but it was an, it was an official mountain. And it was in the middle of winter, and, and South Korea is very, very icy, the coldest place I've ever been. No snow, though. They don't get much snow, but you think it's snow. There, there's so much ice layered on ice. Like, even just walking down the street, it's like an ice rink. I'm not even kidding. You can barely walk down the sidewalk. Like, you actually have to link arms with other people to prevent each other from slipping and sliding. It's, it's that slick. But I climbed that mountain in dress shoes, my proudest moment. I went all the way to the top, and they had a flag. They had a South Korean flag at the very top. Incredible view. Probably the highest up I've, I've ever been. The farthest away from home I've ever been, and the highest up I've ever been. It was a, a pretty profound experience, obviously. But the old man who was walking down the mountain, he spoke... In the town, that the city that I was in, it was about an hour outside of Seoul... And that was interesting because nobody spoke English. I assume because in Seoul, everybody, a lot of people can understand English. I just assumed that any kind of developed metropolitan area of South Korea would have everybody would know English. I just assumed that. A stupid assumption, of course. But it turns out, even an an hour outside, nobody uses English. Very few people know it. So this old man didn't speak any English, and he was just gesturing to my shoes and kind of laughing. It was harsh, and I couldn't say anything in response. I just laughed and just kept walking, but he just kept gesturing to my shoes. Like he was, What he was saying, was it was clear, though. Like Even with the language barrier, that's what's so interesting about body language and just the power that we as humans have to understand each other is that he was gesturing to my feet. So I knew what he was saying. I was wearing freaking dress shoes. Not the nicest dress shoes, not like pointy dress shoes, but they were leather shoes with no tread on the bottom. They had no tread. And there were parts of that climb, too, where there was one part that <laughs> I look back on and I just did it. But there's one part where you're very high up and it's very steep on each side of you. 
And what you have to do to get around this one part is there's a chain bolted to the side of a rock. And like, it's a big rock. It's like, like a cliff face. And there's a chain bolted horizontally. And what you have to do is you have to do like a side rappel. So you have to hold the chain and use your body weight to like lean back. And then you inch along to get up and it's icy, it's cold, you know, and you have to be able to pull your body weight a bit. So, I mean, it was pretty grueling at parts and I just, I just didn't think about the dangers or anything. Not that it, not that it was the most dangerous thing in the world or anything, but still, I mean, it, there were certainly dangers and that old man was warning me of them. It was like an RPG, actually. It was like an RPG when you're about to climb like Death's Peak and there's an old man at the base of the mountain who warns you. That's what happened in South Korea. But um, how do we get on South Korea here? Isolation. Not sure. I'm not sure how I got here. But just thinking about that idea of isolation. And, you know, I guess being the sage opposed to the bad wizard and being conscious of that. Because it's so easy to become that bad wizard. It's so easy to be filled with resentment. And to, to develop a cynicism toward people. Because it's often cynicism that leads you to isolate to begin with anyway. And if cynicism is what leads you to isolate. You're only going to develop that further. You're only going to get more and more deeply cynical. And if you're Ted Kaczynski, you start mailing random bombs to people, to computer salesmen, to the people who don't even, I mean, you're mailing bombs to people who, you know, they're not even the source of the issue you're so upset at. But I think isolation and other issues can do that to you. So it's always a dilemma. And I'd be willing to bet that a lot of people are more isolated than ever before. Like, I doubt that that many people have broken their core habits they developed during coronavirus lockdown. I bet there's a lot of people who have remained just as isolated as they were then. And I have to say, too, because there, there was that period on this show where I was doing those kind of lecherous episodes, like letting you know, like when I, there was a girl out in public... You wouldn't believe what she was wearing or not wearing. There was this two-week period between early July and mid-July where everybody was just showing, everybody was peacocking. The weather was perfect. It was like the perfect summer weather. No smoke had come yet. Mask restrictions had been lifted. And just, you'd go out in public and like women were just showing off. Everybody was just out there, but there was no, there were no bad vibes in the air. It was just, it just felt like everybody was enjoying this relief. And they were just showing themselves something they hadn't been able to do for a while. But it was as if like a clamp came down and that just stopped. And maybe that's my own perception. But I don't think so. And so, you know, being isolated myself, you know, it's, it's, it's a question though of like, you know, I want to make sure that I'm not doing this for a cynical reason. And it's hard not to feel some level of disdain or resentment. But I think this isolation, which is even pretty crazy by my own standards, 
I do. I think it's. I think I'm doing this, and I hate to turn this into some kind of therapy episode after complaining about that so much. But you know, I do think that my own isolation is actually kind of a way to protect me from feeling that way. I think it's a way to protect me from becoming even more cynical right now. But we'll see. You know, because it does feel like all bets are off. And instead of thinking about, like, forging a new reality or returning to normal, it does feel like this is a time of endurance. And isolation is something you have to endure. Mental isolation, social isolation, physical isolation, you know, that is something that you have to endure. But I think you can enjoy—you can use it as time to enjoy yourself, time to actually get back to what matters to you in your own individual life. And if you are a loner, like I am, that's not that hard to do. But I know that nobody's making a solid argument that I should join them right now. Nobody is making a solid argument that I should see things their way or take on their views or join their team. And I don't know what it's going to take to not feel like that's a part of everything. I don't know what it's going to take to not feel like simply existing in society and doing the basic things you need to do to survive as a citizen are trapped in between these just these different interest groups. And that always exists to some degree, but right now it's just it's so heightened. But it could feel entirely different tomorrow because that's kind of how it's been too. You know, things do have the ability to change in the matter of a day. I mean, the suddenness with which all of this has happened shows you that it could lift just as suddenly if you're not attached to it. I think if you're not attached to any part of this, it can go away just as soon as it arrived, as long as you hold on to yourself. which is why meditation for me is particularly valuable right now. Not because it gives me any profound insight, actually because it doesn't. It doesn't give me, I don't sit there and have epiphanies. I don't sit there and have, there's no, there's no explosion of transcendence, but simply having that practice is showing its value right now. even to circle back to what I was saying at the beginning, where it helps you at the very least recognize what's actually going on inside of you, or rather what's not going on, opposed to what's going on on the crust of who you are. And it's the crust of who you are where like all these battles are fighting. But that's only the outer layers of you. And you become aware of that when you meditate and you actually feel your anxiety. You have no attachment to it. It's just there. But that battle, that electric battle of anxiety, you notice that that's going on. That's my crust. And yeah, it gets into me. But what's that? it's actually something that's going on, not just on the crust of my body, but like the crust of my consciousness. 
And so many things are operating there. It's that illusion. You know, because when you think about the word illusion, all sorts of visuals come to mind. Like, it's funny, like, your introduction to a word like illusion is very, you know, the visual you get is very much based on the way that that was introduced to you. And I think I was introduced to the idea of an illusion. I think I was watching a cartoon or something where there was a castle made out of light. At least that's what I visualize. Whenever I say the word illusion, I imagine this castle made out of light. I don't, I must have seen that somewhere. I don't think I just came up with that on my own, but at some formative stage of my life, I was introduced to the concept of an illusion and the visual it was illustrated or it was in a cartoon. It was somewhere. It was a castle made out of light. So when I say illusion, I see a castle made out of light. But that itself is an illusion because, because an illusion isn't necessarily that cartoony or stylized. But you realize, you know, through meditation and just through different practices, like how much is illusory like that? How much of what's going on with you is itself an illusion? And you think, what is an illusion? It's something external. An illusion has no inward core. Or rather, like it's not a part of an inward, uh, of an internal core of something. It's something, it, it's an external phenomenon that has nothing truly inside of it. And when you reach the right state during meditation, That's sort of the sensation you have, is that all of this other stuff, even though I feel it, even though it's a part of me, and I can't transcend my body and this life that I'm living, you do realize that a lot of the things that are troubling you, a lot of the things that are consuming you, even something like anxiety, even a sensation, it's an external phenomenon. And it's not what you're actually experiencing inside, which feels much more empty. You know, when you're sitting there in a state of meditation and you're, you're recognizing like the external nature of what you feel and what you think and so much of like who you think you are as you go about your life, it's not that you actually feel something of substance inside of you. It is that sort of emptiness but it's a desirable emptiness. It's not that emptiness you feel when you're lonely and you want that to be filled. You want something to be filled. It's not a void, although it is. It's just that it's a void that's not colored by your emotions, your attachments. And I try not to be preachy about it, I don't tell anybody you should meditate because I think that's annoying. I think it's annoying when you when you try to tell somebody to do something they're not ready to do. I think they have to find that on their own. Because I can't imagine anybody else telling me to meditate and me doing it. Like some people suggested it over the years, but I can't imagine like just making a decision. Like it wasn't a rational decision for me. It was just the place I was in when I started doing it, it felt like it was the next step I had to take. And it wasn't one I wanted to take. Oh, I, I want to add something else I have to do every day. But it felt like it was the, a necessary step spiritually. And some people approach meditation secularly. They have apps. I don't understand it. 
It seems like they benefit from it. But I don't care what's going on scientifically. I don't care what kind of scientific analysis you want to do on like what happens to the brain when it's in a state of meditation. I, I don't need that. Nobody needed that when these practices were developed. But if a secular-minded person, especially somebody who's very, who doesn't want their meditation to be religious or spiritual, because I think that's part of it. I think some of the people who choose these secular approaches... They're better off for it, and they'll usually tell you as much. But I get the impression that not even necessarily fear, but just they don't want to approach it. They're often people who, if they're not atheists, they, they've leaned that way. I mean, because Sam Harris is a big one where he developed—he's an atheist, and he developed his own meditation app— I just can't imagine taking that approach. I'm not even knocking it. I just can't imagine taking that route. Just making a rational decision to start meditating. For me, it was like I was bursting at the seams. And I felt like I was on the precipice of something. And so it just seemed like that time-honored practice was what I needed to do. And it turns out it was. But I realized, too, like I had a friend who was kind of going through that exact experience, like they were bursting at the seams. He was he was bursting at the seams. And we were talking about that. He was telling me like what he was reading, what he was into. He was in this heightened spiritual state. And I could sense it. You know, you could feel it. You know, it wasn't just somebody who read a book and was like, that's a good idea. Oh, I'm starting to think that this is there's something to this. He was somebody who was feeling it. And I did recommend meditation to him. And he was like, you know, I I'm not ready for that. I could tell that it wasn't something I should press. Like the way he responded, it wasn't argumentative or anything, but I could just kind of tell that he was going in his own direction. It's not like he doesn't know meditation exists. We all know it exists, but you, I think you do have to kind of find that on your own. Even if it tortures you, because it does sometimes. You know, meditation does torture you. I mean, these practices in general, these these viewpoints, I mean, you know, Buddhism has been given such a soft touch. It has such a soft touch these days. I mean, my perception of it was that way for years. You don't realize how harsh it is. You know, it really challenges your entire system. System. And it's not all pleasure. And some people react strongly to that, which I think is one reason why some people have developed softer teachings. These sort of follow your bliss, sort of hippie-ish approaches to Buddhism. But going back to, oh, I remember, I was talking about South Korea. See, eventually I figured it out. I figured it out. With South Korea, the reason that came up is because like Song Chin, he isolated himself in the mountains. And I know he did see other monks, but he actually surrounded his own, I don't know if it was a monastery or simply a dwelling. I think it was, I think it was his own, he was, and he was also a scientist, interestingly. And he's made some pretty profound connections between Buddhism and science that don't involve scientific analysis of Buddhism, but just using, basically he's found analogs between Buddhism and science. 
he's been able to make anal- he, he was able to make some very interesting analogies between scientific analysis and Buddhism without trying to scientize Buddhism, which is very difficult for people to do because they often want, want to explain Buddhism in scientific terms or do experiments or tests. Like I've mentioned before, like they've done tests on monks' brains. They've done some tests on a monk's brain while he's meditating, and they found that the neurons are doing this. I haven't seen Song Chen go into any, anything like that. He, just as a scientist and a well-known practitioner, uh, a Buddhist master, you know, he was able to make some interesting comparisons, I think you could say. But he isolated himself. He surrounded his dwelling in the mountains with barbed wire, which is just incredible aesthetically. You know, his hermitage, that's what you would call it. He'd call it a hermitage. He surrounded his hermitage with barbed wire because he did not want to be bothered. And there was one point where he was at a monastery and his mom came to visit, who he hadn't seen in a very long time. And he felt so one with God that he didn't even want to meet his mom. Not because he had any problems with her. It just meant nothing to him at that time. His mom came to visit, and it meant nothing to him, and he, he wasn't even going to break his practice to go visit her. He wasn't even going to see her, because he was so detached. But some of the other monks told him, like, man, you really got to go see your mom. She's here. You got to see her. Because you can't just live in the spirit world while you are here in this body. You do need to maintain those connections. But I thought that was so interesting when I read about it. There was no malice. It was simply he was in such a detached, isolated state that he didn't even want to see his own mom. And not as a matter of like preference, just it just didn't even make sense to him. But, you know, South Korea Buddhism, that's where we also saw after the war. Different Buddhist monasteries joined different political factions And you had Buddhist monasteries, the monks in certain Buddhist monasteries, hiring thugs to throw Molotov cocktails into rival monasteries. And it was a political rivalry because certain certain branches of, of South Korean Buddhism, of Korean Buddhism, supported one political group while another one supported another. And here they are Buddhists hiring thugs to firebomb each other. And that actually makes Buddhism stronger to me. Like, you can see that and be like, well, see, they're all hypocrites. They're all hypocrites. Those Buddhists were trying to kill each other, hurt each other, and damage each other. And it's like, that actually kind of proves Buddhism more than anything to me. It proves that we are all susceptible, including monks, especially times of great turmoil. And you know what? And that example is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Because I, I have mentioned that I've just felt angrier, angrier than usual. And being isolated and angry is a bad combo. But you have to, you have to recognize it. You have to be aware of the, that. You have to be aware of the quote-unquote chemicals going on inside of you where it's like isolation and anger. But you know what? That's, doesn't that describe everybody right now? A lot of people. There's a lot of isolation and anger, and that's a horrible recipe. And most of those people, they don't even have the tools to become bad wizards. They're not even meant to be bad wizards. So they just end up being nasty. They just end up being mean to their loved ones. They end up 
being mean to people online. They make enemies where they don't need to make them. But I, I just I remind myself of those monks firebombing each other. Because it's like, I don't want my own anger to blind me. I don't want my own anger to distract from what's truly important to me and what I truly believe and what I believe in practicing for myself as much as anything else. But I'm glad to have those examples. You know, that's a parable to me. That to me is sort of a holy story. Like just because it's in more recent history doesn't mean it's any less of a valuable parable in the history of Buddhism to think. And it it wasn't just South Korea. I'm trying to remember where it was, but there was somewhere else where there was political turmoil and the monks again joined rival political groups and were engaged in violence. So it's not just a one-off. But you can see where everybody does feel morally righteous. Everybody does feel like they are coming from the right place. And that's the easiest way to trick yourself. And next thing you know, you're hiring a thug to firebomb your Buddhist rivals. And and to be honest, too, it's like I, I don't even say half the things I want to say. Even on this show, like this show I feel like has become a little more even a little more uncensored than it already was lately. And it feels good to do that. But it's like, I'm not even saying everything I'm feeling because a lot of what I'm feeling is very in the moment. Like when I'm mad about something, it's very in that moment. And I don't feel like it's a good representation of me. And it's, it's expressing that that I think can turn isolation into a permanent separation from your humanity. And not using my my personal social media or accounts lately. In the last week, a couple things have come to mind where I want to hop on there and say something. But it's almost always something that could be incendiary. And I thought to myself, what would be the value in that? One, I would be expressing myself. Maybe somebody who sees it my way would feel like there's somebody else out there. But is that any different than the person who wears a a mask in their profile photo to tell people to wear a mask? Like, would I just be doing that in writing? It's silly. I mean, it's it's silly to even think about these things, but you do. Because they also influence how you talk to people you know. You know, is that thing that I really want to say, is that thing that I really feel the need to express, will it even do what I want it to do? And do I even know what I want it to do? And putting myself in this position and being, and and to some degree being forced into this position, I do want to be very careful not to burn any bridges. Because this is a time where people are readily doing just that. They're all too ready, all too happy to burn bridges. And they make the mistake of thinking that that will empower their cause when it does exactly the opposite.
is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free